Good morning, everybody. Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to the book of Genesis chapter 39. Genesis chapter 39. Last week, we started a, a new series of lessons based on the character of Joseph. And it started by looking at this major family detour that he was dealing with in his life. His brothers, of all things, sells him into slavery. And so we jump to chapter 39 because that's where the story continues. And it's here he begins by saying, Now Joseph has been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had brought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man. He was in the house of, the Egyptian, of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight, and attended him, and he made him overseer of his house, and put him in charge of all that he had. From that time, he made him overseer of his house, and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field, so he left all that he had in Joseph's charge, and because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food that he ate. So he ends up a slave in this, this Egyptian officer's house. And we see that God is blessing him. Now, it's not exactly where he wanted to be. You know, instead of having his own family, living in his own house, tending to his own fields, he's, he's, he's in charge of other people's. But God is, is still with him. Even though the evil that other people do, we see that God continues to bless him. And then we see the latter part of verse 6. It's just kind of odd little statement there. It says, now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. Something for the single ladies, right? Unfortunately, it's setting us up because he catches the eye of Potiphar's wife. And, and, you know, in that day and time, it was more than just saying, this is adultery, if they were to end up together. It was also seen as like a power play on his master's possessions and his stuff. But for Joseph, it was a lot deeper than that. Because in verse 8, he says, But he refused, and he said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against who? against God. Do you think that Potiphar's wife is going to respect his integrity? No. If you read the very next verse, you see that she comes at him every day, and it seems that she set up a situation where just the two of them were going to be in the house together, and she comes and she grabs his garment, and she orders him to sleep with him, to sleep with her. And he, he gets out of there. And in so doing, he leaves his garment that's still in her hands. 
And we say, bravo, J Joseph. But if you go on and you read the rest of the story, you know that she then accused him of rape. Potiphar throws him in prison. You know, at what point do you think Joseph just says, you know, I keep trusting in God, and, and instead of things getting better, these detours are getting worse. Things, I'm going down, not up. But one thing that we see is the Lord is still with him. And he's still trusting God, and that's because we know that, because the Lord is still with him. And so in verse 21, it says, But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love, there's that word, hesed, and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever he has done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it successful. Isn't that interesting? That God not only is blessing him, but he's blessing these homes and, and, and these prisoners and, and that are in their charge. Then in chapter 40, the Lord gives him a side job as an interpreter of dreams. And there's one he knows, he interprets, he's going to get out. He, and his only, only payment he really wants is, is simply, just remember me when you get out. But then we come to the last verse in chapter 40, and it simply says this, Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. This morning, we're talking about those work detours in your life. Some of you, you know what it's like to go to college for years and pile up debt, only to end up in a job that has nothing to do with the degree that you're still paying on. Some of you, you know what it's like to start a job and, and, and they promise you that you're going to, you know, there's going to be promotions and you're going to have a quick promotion and, and, and yet you just continue to watch other people being promoted and people that you know that they're not even qualified. Or maybe you've experienced something that my family dealt with. Had a family business that went out in the early 90s when the textile industry in America collapsed. Now, I know what it's like to watch this business that started by my grandfather years ago just to be pieced out to the highest bidder. Work can be brutal. It can be demanding. It can be unpleasant. And it can even turn you into something that you do not want to become. But what if you could feel good about what you do in your work, despite all those circumstances? There are three things that I want to share with you this morning that I believe is absolutely essential. When we talk about our jobs, when we talk about these detours that we find in our lives, we're not exactly where we want to be, but we just continue to trust the Lord. And we do that, first of all, with our attitude. How many of you have ever been to a restaurant 
and you feel like that you are inconveniencing the server who's supposed to be serving you. Anybody ever run into that? You ever been to a store? Maybe you're checking out, and the person, they, they didn't speak. They didn't smile. They didn't even look at you. I've had that happen. You ever, you ever work with people that all they do is complain? That's all they do. It's just, and, and listen, I know people can have bad days. If you've ever worked in the food industry and you have, you have just done everything you can to please a customer and they're just rude and they stiff you on a tip, or if you've ever worked in customer service and you're the person who is being yelled at for things that isn't even your fault, you understand how frustrating that can be. And I think Joseph would have gotten very frustrated in his time as well. But he always did the best he could for the people that he worked for, even if, even if they were bad people themselves. He had a different attitude. The text says that the Lord was with Joseph and he became successful. And I do not believe that he could have been successful had he not been a vessel that the Lord could use. Would you promote somebody that, you know, they're, they're, they're always late, they're always complaining, they have poor customer relations? No. Maybe you don't like the job that you're in. But let me ask you this. Would it be better if you could somehow find your way promoted and, and maybe make it to manager where you could possibly make a difference? You may say, well, I'm in a dead-end job. I have no way of promotion. But your attitude can change how you view your work. You know that? My daughter brought her new boyfriend in a couple of weekends ago for us to meet. She wants to take him, see the beach, to see, you know, take him to her favorite place to eat. I took him to the dump. Now, there's kind of a double-edged sword there. One is that he could lift, load, and unload something that I couldn't do myself. But the other thing is, I really like the dump. It's a proud moment. When I, if I take you to the dump, that's a very proud moment for me. And, and it's, it's, one thing is, I get rid of junk, right? But the other thing is, there, one of the guys there, in fact, there's more than just one, but there's one in particular. He is always just so nice. He's always smiling. He's always talking to you. And these guys, for whatever reason... They take a little bit of pride in their work, and they even try to make it fun. For a while there, they would, they would take some of the junk, and they would make their own decorations. This is one I, I think it's the last picture I took of one of their decorations. It's just a mannequin leg coming out of three tires, and you notice they, they add a little bit of, you know, glitz there. You know, that's really nice. But it's like, how do I get better customer service at the dump than I do in some restaurants and in some stores where they're working in air conditioning. Let's take this to the Scriptures, though. Let's go to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. We're finished with Genesis as far as reading out of, our, out of there. Colossians chapter 3. I want to I start reading in verse 22. 
He says, bond servants, obey ev in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Knowing that from the Lord, you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done. And there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Now, first of all, Paul is not condoning slavery. This issue came up here recently, I think, with a basketball coach because he quoted this scripture. He's not condoning slavery. In fact, it is Christian principles that led to the end of slavery in England and here in America and in other places. The slaves that he's talking about here, they didn't have it quite as bad as, as those that we think of in, in the Deep South. But they also, it was not easy. They had to answer to every whim of their master. They were often in jobs that wasn't going to bring about any kind of promotion. If anyone had reason to hate their jobs and to resent their, their bosses, it's these guys. But it's interesting, Paul doesn't say, listen, just try to... Do your best and just, you know, just kind of stay out of trouble. No, he says, you be the best slave you can be. And that blows our minds, doesn't it? If you work at a, at a dead-end job, you be the best, the best employee that you can be. If you work as a, in the service industry, you be the best server that you possibly can be. Do more than is expected. Paul is trying to give us an attitude adjustment. He says, stop looking at it like you're serving these people who he acknowledges there are those who are evil in what they do. He says, change your attitude and see it that whatever you do, you do it heartily as to who? the Lord. Boy, that changes things, doesn't it? That really changes things. Your work matters to God. In fact, I think we could even look at this and say our work is even an act of worship itself. Paul says that it ought to be in the fear or the reverence of the Lord. Our worship is not confined to once a week. It's something that we do in, in factories and in our jobs and, and in classrooms and kitchens. You know, some of the most soulful worship songs ever sung and composed happened in the southern cotton fields. Swing low, sweet chariot. Let us break bread together on our knees. They were reminding themselves and they were also reminding their masters that their true master sees them and he's coming back and he's going to right the wrongs. 
They turned oppressive plantations into sanctuaries of praise. That's amazing to me. Attitude. Second thing is this, integrity. Integrity. You know, when Joseph was being sexually harassed, he doesn't say, listen, I I can't be with you because your husband will kill me. No, what he says is, I cannot do this against my Lord. I cannot sin against my God. And you may say, well, that's great and everything, but where did that that land him? Well, in prison. You ever tried to do the right thing and it backfired on you? You know, you may, you may work in a place that you're not very popular because you wouldn't lie for somebody to keep them out of trouble. Or, or maybe you didn't get a job because you refused to lie on your resume. I saw a recent stat this, this past week. It said of almost 1,800 Americans surveyed, 55% said that they had lied on their resume at least once. And it's easy for us to, you know, uh, you know, make excuses, maybe some good reasons. Well, you don't understand. I really need this job. You know, I need it for my family. I, besides, everybody else is doing it, right? But we trust God. That's what this is all about. Trust God in these detours that you are on. Stop trying to plow a brand new road. Because we, we've already learned that when we do it our way, it's just never going to work out right. We're just not going to see the kind of blessings that we can have in God. Now, that's easy to say, trust God when everything's going well. But when things aren't, but integrity does what is right, even when it comes at a great personal cost. You know, I love Joseph. He doesn't come to this point in chapter 40, at the end of chapter 40, and say, well, you know what? If I'm going to be treated like a criminal, I might as well just act like one. He doesn't do that. He continues to trust God. And maybe you're a person, and you're here, and you feel like you haven't been given a fair shake. And so you've just stopped caring. You come in late, you leave early. You, you don't do your job. But our main priority, folks, listen to this, and it's in everything in life, but it's also dealing with what we do in our workplace as well. Our main priority is to glorify God. It's always to glorify God, no matter what other people do. And we just trust Him. One more thing. Self-worth. The most popular surname in Germany and Switzerland is a name um, we have today is Miller. It's a, it's a type of work. The common name in Slovakia is a word that means cobbler. The most common name in the UK, Australia, New Zealand, Canada, and the US is Smith, as in blacksmith, silversmith, locksmith, gunsmith. And these names come out of the Middle Ages when literally your name was identified with your work. 
Now today our jobs, they don't dictate our names. But in a lot of ways, it still maintains our identity, doesn't it? I mean, you think about it. You go somewhere, you meet somebody for the first time. Maybe you've done that this morning. You met somebody that's, that's new here. And maybe one of the first questions that come out is this. What do you do for a, a living? What do you do for a living? But when your job becomes your identity, then you allow it to determine your value. And that's what's dangerous. What did Joseph's resume look like? You ever thought about that? Well, I was a former head slave of an Egyptian officer. Well, why did you leave that place? Um, there was a personality conflict with the boss's wife, right? You know, well, I had a stint in, in prison, but, you know, I was high up in prison. You know, Joseph had much bigger dreams, literally, of being a powerful man. But he didn't place his self-worth in his current position. He placed his value in who, how God sees him. Mr. Holland's opus, some of you may have seen it. If some of you come out and say, well, I was going to see that tonight. Well, let me tell you, it was 1994, I think. So, sorry, you had your chance. But it's based on the true story of a frustrated composer in Portland who takes a job as a high school teacher in the 1960s. It was supposed to be a temporary job while he worked on his opus or concerto. He wanted to be famous and rich for, for doing um, this thing. It's his lifelong goal. But he soon determined because of the pressures of his job and the family demands as they increased, he finally came to the conclusion that his dream was simply a dream. It was not going to be something he would ever be able to accomplish in leaving a musical legacy. At the end of the movie, we see that he is now an aged Mr. Mr. Holland. And he is fighting for his job because the board is wanting to cut the arts department. He is no longer a reluctant band director. He believes in what he does, and he passionately defends his role and the importance of the arts in public education. What began as a career detour in his life, until it came to something better, ended up being a 35-year mission when he poured his heart into these young people. A few days after school was let out, he's not coming back. He, he goes and he cleans out his office, and as he's leaving, he hears this noise in the auditorium of the school. And when he walks in, it is packed full of current, and past members of, of his classes. There is there, a standing ovation. Past and present band members play songs that, that he had taught them. The governor of Oregon shows up, who happened to be one of his students early on, that he helped to believe in herself. 
And she got up and she makes this wonderful speech. And it's this speech I want you to listen to now. Mr. Holland had a profound influence on my life, on a lot of lives I know. And yet I get the feeling that he considers a great part of his own life misspent. Rumor had it he was always working on this symphony of his, and this was going to make him famous, rich, probably both. But Mr. Holland isn't rich, and he isn't famous, at least not outside of our little town. So it might be easy for him to think himself a failure. And he would be wrong, because I think he's achieved a success far beyond riches and fame. Look around you. There is not a life in this room that you have not touched. And each one of us is a better person because of you. We are your symphony, Mr. Holland. We are the melodies and the notes of your opus. And we are the music of your life. You know, over the years, I've seen janitors, lunchroom workers, coaches in small towns, preachers in small churches, teachers in low-income areas who were honored after years of pouring into their community. Some of them Never got a degree. In fact, some of them never even got a high school degree. None of them made a lot of money in their lifetime. But they gave it all they had. And they invested in the people who were around them. They went the extra mile. And the people they touched became their opus. Which begs the question, who are the melodies and the notes of your opus? No matter if you're at a dead-end job, no matter if it's not the one that you want to be in, no matter if it's a detour of where you think you're going to be one day, how are you bringing glory to God? How are you touching people's lives and what you do? No matter where Joseph ended up, the Lord blessed him. And he also blessed those with whom he worked. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this day, and we know that there may be some who are in this auditorium, and they've just had a terrible week of work. It's draining. It's frustrating. They haven't been treated fairly. And Father, I just ask you to be with each one of them this day and help them to realize that, that you're working even when we don't always understand it or understand how or when. Father, help us to always maintain the right attitude Help us to always live with integrity. May we always, no matter where we end up in life, 
realize that our self-worth is in you. But Father, help us to touch the community in which we live. Father, heal those who have been damaged and they've been hurt. But Father, I just pray that somehow through these scriptures, that it just brings a new perspective. And Father, we just ask all of these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.